This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Great. Yeah, it's great to be here with you all. It's... It's been eight years since I was first here, and it looks exactly the same. <laughs> but, yeah, great to, great to be here with you all, without the mask, obviously. And, yeah, I'm really glad to be here to, to talk about a topic that's really dear to me, to my heart, relevant to a lot of you, hopefully all of you in one way or another. And I'm, all, I'm really looking forward to the conversation afterward. So I'm going to try to speak for about an hour, and... Then we'll just have a kind of free-flowing conversation as we do at Libri until people are tired or midnight comes, whichever is first. So uh, that was a joke. Um, so I don't think any of us need reminding that there's such a thing as the culture war or culture wars. If anything, these have intensified during covid Pro-vaccine versus anti-vax. The election was fair versus election was stolen. January 6th was an insurrection or maybe just a riot. The cultural battle between conservatives and progressives goes on and on. And although there seems to have been a lull in this one particular cultural battle since the beginning of the pandemic... Over the past decade or so, there's been quite a debate on university campuses about the relationship between religious freedom and policies about sex, uh, human sexuality. And one of the debated questions has been this. Should campus groups be able to ask leaders to affirm their Christian understanding of sexuality? Is that a legitimate expression of religious freedom or is doing so opening up the doors to discrimination which should be prohibited at universities and one of the key moments in this this cultural battle came in 2010 when the supreme court ruled in christian legal society versus martinez that public universities did not have to recognize student groups that required leaders to hold specific beliefs. Let me just say that again. The, the ruling was that public universities did not have to recognize student groups that, quote-unquote, discriminated against leaders. Discrimination in quotes, because that's debatable whether that was discrimination or not. Non-discrimination advocates won a victory. Religious freedom advocates were dealt a blow. And after that Supreme Court decision, some public and private schools decided to suspend the activities of evangelical campus ministries. Public universities were able to do so because of CLS versus Martinez, that Supreme Court ruling. Private universities can do whatever they want. But there was more of a cultural precedent now 
for de-recognizing evangelical Christian groups that required leaders to affirm certain beliefs. In 2011, a number of Christian groups at Vanderbilt lost their status as student orgs. In 2012, Tufts University de-recognized the InterVarsity group on campus. In 2014, Bowdoin College followed suit. In the past decade or so, really a little over a decade, InterVarsity has been involved in debates about whether they can remain on campuses, on more than 40 campuses. And it's not just InterVarsity groups, that's just the, the world I know best. And I don't want to assume here in this room that everyone has the same beliefs about Christianity or the same beliefs about sexuality. But the kind of the case study of this lecture, if you will, is going to be about Christians who hold the traditional belief about sexuality. That might be you. That might not be you. That's the cool thing about Labrie. You're all here together to, to have conversation. And I'm probably going to use a few terms interchangeably. Small O Orthodox Christian, Christians with traditional beliefs to describe these Christians. But I'm really going to try to avoid saying conservative Christians because that brings up all kinds of political connotations. And for the most part, with a couple exceptions, I'm going to talk about theology, not politics. So if you're a small O Orthodox Christian and you're coming to any public and many private universities, unless they're explicitly Christian universities, this is the environment you're walking into. You're walking into an environment where a culture war has raged or simmered for a number of years. And the question is, how are you supposed to act? What should your attitude or posture be toward those on the other side of the culture war, toward the university? Should you hide your beliefs to fit in? Should you fight for your beliefs? Should you leave secular schools as quickly as you can? Those are the questions I want to explore with you tonight. And it might seem, with this introduction, that I'm setting you up for doom and gloom, but I'm actually quite hopeful. I'm hopeful because of the story that we're going to read in the Bible, a letter from the Bible. And it talks about the way the Israelites were instructed by God to approach Babylon, which is was not a secular city in the way we think of it, but there are some parallels that we can draw from that and some lessons. And I think there's some lessons that kind of get us beyond this culture war, us versus them framework. And that's what I'm excited to, to explore. So before we get to that, uh, letter in scripture, though, I want to talk a little bit about culture, flesh out some of the ways that Christians have thought about Christian cultural engagement. And then I want to look at this letter and especially the calling that it gives to the exiles in Babylon. And I would argue to us today as well, those of us who are in secular spaces. And I want to close by thinking about what kind of character do we need to live out this calling? Because I love alliteration, here we go. Uh, culture, calling, and character. And I know not all of you are students, many of you are Libri students, not all of you are university students, not all of you will be university students, some of you were university students a long time ago. I'm talking about the university, but I think the same cultural dynamics are at work in whatever secular setting you're in, secular job, secular family, whatever it is, hopefully you can draw some parallels, whether you're a student or whether you're not. 
So let's talk about culture, calling, and character. So the question how to engage the culture is a question Christians have been wrestling with for a very long time. Who's heard that phrase, engage the culture, or engaging with culture? Like, tons of people, especially if you've been in Christian settings for a while, it's kind of a, not a buzzword, a buzz topic. It's something that people like to talk about a lot. As I was thinking about that and reading books about engaging the culture, there was another question coming into my mind, which is, what is culture? <laughs> What are you engaging? What is what is culture in the first place? And it's a little bit like fish asking, what is water? We live in culture. We swim in culture. It's all around us. It's a little hard to define it. And my brain works in such a way I'm so left-brained trying to, like, put everything in a concise phrase and sum it up and all that. And I, I just failed to do that with culture. I just could not give you like a definition. Here is culture. But I'm going to give you just a couple of uh, descriptions of culture that I read in some of these books. And hopefully it can help us create something like a, a quilt or something. Um, so for all of you who are right brain, this will be great. Those of you left brain, just, you know, bear with me, stick with me, and we can get through this. Um, so the first one is from a book we're going to talk about a bit in a couple of minutes called The Benedict Option, which made a splash a few years ago. And this is the way that Rod Dreher, the author of that book, defines culture. He's talking about specifically Christian culture here, but I think it does have some interesting parallels to secular culture or any culture. Here's what he says. Benedictine spirituality is good at creating a Christian culture because it is all about developing and sustaining the Christian cultus, a Latin word meaning worship. A culture is the way of life that emerges from the common worship of a people. What we hold most sacred determines the form and content of our culture, which emerges organically from the process of making a faith tangible. So, the main thing I got from this is that culture is about more than ideas. Who's heard of worldview or like been to like worldview school or something like that? Like again, especially in more evangelical Christian spaces, worldview is a big thing. Culture is definitely worldview. It's also more than worldview. When we're talking about secular culture, we're talking about more than the idea of atheism. Culture is about worship. Culture is, and what you worship is what you hold to be most worthy. Culture is about these practices and values. Um, and so engaging culture is going to be going to be about more than debating ideas. It's going to be about engaging practices and values and what people worship. And the second is from a book called culture making by Andy Crouch. If you don't get anything from this lecture, except one thing, be it the, the, the encouragement to read this book, Culture Making by Andy Crouch. It shaped this entire um, lecture that I've put together. It's just a brilliant, brilliant take on culture and, and especially culture making. So here's what he says. We make sense of the world by making something of the world. The human quest for meaning is played out in human making. The finger painting, omelet stirring, chair crafting, snow swishing, activities of culture. Meaning and making go together. Culture, you could say, is the activity of making meaning. So culture is what we make of the world. We make things, and Crouch will later call 
um, these things, cultural goods or cultural products. And those things become culture. So omelets are culture. Eggs maybe are nature. Eggs are just like the raw material. Although we've like domesticated chickens too, right? So like maybe eggs are culture. But you take eggs and then you add a certain vision of what is like delicious and what tastes good and all that. You get an omelet. Omelet. Omelets are culture. An omelet is culture. It's kind of a silly example. He starts the book with that. But think about some of these things. The printing press. The computer. The iPhone. Zoom. These inventions, these cultural goods, shaped what was possible, what is possible, what is impossible. And create new ideas, even. So some people call Crouch like a culture cultural materialist, because he's thinking about the material conditions of culture. But I think it's a really important um, kind of way into talking about culture, and we're going to talk about culture making later, and so that will come up. And I also want to point out, there's no quote necessarily about this, maybe you got this in the Roger Code, but although we create culture, culture also shapes us. It's not a one-way street. It's not the Christians going out there and shaping culture. It's culture is also shaping us, which should engender a little bit of humility, probably. And again, think about the iPhone. Uh, this is true of me. Maybe this is a confessional moment right here. We created it, but it's creating something of us. Certainly creating something of me. So culture shapes us as much as we shape it, and maybe even more so. And again, no, no quote about this, but... There really is no capital T, the capital C, culture. There's no the culture. It's cultures. And even if I'm talking about secular culture, and I'm going to use it as shorthand, but it's really secular cultures. There's a secular, the secular culture at Harvard and MIT are different, and they're like, you know, a mile away from each other. And they're different secular cultures at different grad schools at Harvard. And anyway, secular cultures, cultures, but I am going to use some shorthand. So with this in mind, the question is, how should we engage with culture at a university? And there are three models of cultural engagement that a number of people have proposed. I'm kind of drawing them from a book by James Davison Hunter, who is a Christian sociologist at UVA. And it's from his book, To Change the World. I've, I've created my own labels because I like alliteration. Okay? Um, he, he calls them defensive against relevance to and purity from. And, and I just said, winning back the university... That's like defensive against, winning over the university, relevant to, and withdrawing from the university, purity from. So journey back with me to November 2009, the the aughts. It's a brisk day in North Carolina. I'm a junior at Davidson College, and I walk into our student union to pick up the student newspaper, the Davidsonian. In the back where the op-eds are, I read in... Big print. Homosexuality against Christian tradition. That raised my eyebrows. I just wanted to read about whether anyone else had gotten swine flu. Remember swine flu? Remember when that was our pandemic? Oh my goodness. One of my classmates penned an op-ed arguing that Davidson, a Christian school, kind of, sort of, should not be celebrating National Coming Out Day. I blotted out the author's name here because it's not about him, that's not important, um, but this posture is what I'm trying to get at. As you can imagine, this made quite a stir on campus. 
after this op-ed was published, there was a rally in support of LGBTQ students, and even like a like a town hall type event where Davidson's chaplain spoke about a vision, a Christian vision for love and tolerance, not hate. I wasn't a Christian at the time, and, and I remember thinking, wow, I, I can't believe there are Christians who believe that, first of all, who, who care about what people do in the privacy of their bedrooms, but also, I can't believe they're so hateful. Like, Why would you write an op-ed about that? Do they want us to go back to the 1950s or way before that? And indeed, there are many people who want to fight to make sure a university or culture more broadly remains Christian or becomes Christian again. And I'm calling this model of cultural engagement winning back the university. Is the posture normally associated with the so-called religious right? And in 2009, here's another example of it. Sorab Amari published an essay in First Things magazine titled Against David Frenchism. A shocking title, to say the least. I hope none of you write against Jeff Banks-ism after <laughs> this lecture. David French is a never-Trump conservative who argues basically for a principled pluralism in which different viewpoints are respected in the public square. Amari, needless to say, disagrees. This is like a really niche, conservative, politically conservative debate I'm not going to go into, but this quote I thought was too good to pass up because it illustrates this posture of winning back really well. So Amari says, I added, the only way is through. That is to say, to fight the culture war with the aim of defeating the enemy and enjoying the spoils in the form of a public square reordered to the common good and ultimately the highest good. The culture war in this view is just that. It is a war. And it's one we must win. And to do so, we have to fight to regain the university or the public square. We, we can't back, if we back down, we're gonna be trampled. And you, you get this, like this is the stereotypical attitude of right-wing Christians that you read about in the media. And maybe some of us have thought this way. Maybe some of us do think this way. Certainly I felt this way at times. And there are strengths in this posture. It retains the distinctiveness of the Christian faith. Those who speak up, like my classmate or Amari, whatever else they might be, they have courage. It's not easy to say this, in even in First Things Magazine, but certainly um, in Massachusetts, saying something like this takes a lot of courage, even, yeah, North Carolina. They're willing to stand up for what they believe to be the truth and be hated for it. But there are some weaknesses, too. I think it's it's too backward-looking. It's longing for the old days when we had a Christian consensus. At the university, maybe it would be longing for the days when everyone went to chapel, had to take religion classes. It's just not realistic. It's We're not getting back to those old days. Um, and it's kind of denying reality. Pluralism, secularism, those are here to stay. And if you think that is a lack of imagination on my part, let's talk about it in the Q&A. <laughs> if winning back the university is the posture associated with the religious right, then winning over the university is the posture that is associated with the religious left. And this would basically be the posture of the chaplain at Davidson that I referred to earlier, stood up in our town hall meeting, talked about how the Christian 
faith is about love and tolerance. It's not the hateful religion of the author of the op-ed. People adopting this posture reinterpret the Christian faith in light of new cultural cultural realities. And perhaps find few theological conflicts between Christianity and culture. I do want to say this posture of winning over the university can help us develop a principled pluralism. Like wanting to be relevant is not the wor- it's not the end of the world. Um, it's setting up a big table so people of different faiths and viewpoints can come together. That's a good. Th- well, we need more viewpoint diversity at universities. Principled pluralism is good, but there's also a way, and I wonder if many of us can resonate more with this. There's a way of winning over our friends at university by basically hiding our beliefs. That's not good. If we downplay our beliefs so much in order to win others over and be relevant, tolerant, up with the times, on the right side of history, we risk losing our Christian integrity and identity. Are we still Christian in any meaningful sense if we gloss over what we believe so that we can be respected or liked? Striving to be relevant is a slippery slope to assimilation. Remember, as much as we want to shape culture, culture shapes us. So the final of these options is just to get out, withdraw from university, leave Harvard, go to a Christian college. And there's nothing wrong with going to a Christian college. Don't hear me say that. Many of them are awesome places. But the point is, is that the only faithful path? Is the university so far gone that everyone has to withdraw and go to a Christian college. This cultural stance withdrawing is most often associated with people from an Anabaptist tradition, but it's gained a huge resurgence in recent years with the publication of Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option. In this book, Dreher, a conservative Christian, and there I do use that intentionally, theologically and politically he's very conservative, argues that Dreher argues that Christians need to make a strategic Withdrawal. That's the quote from him. Strategic withdrawal from mainstream culture in order to preserve their historic faith amid hostility. So strategic withdrawal, as far as I can tell, is a very carefully worded term. What exactly is he advocating? Would he want you all to drop out of your secular university and go to Gordon or Wheaton? Would he want you to quit your secular job, leave your secular family, move to a commune, never leave Labrie? <laughs> Not exactly. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the workers are like, no. No. No Rod Dreher. We cannot read this. Um, yeah, not exactly. And I don't, yeah, I don't want to make this whole lecture about the Benedict option, but at the very least, what he's saying is that wherever you are, you need a thick community of faith. And this is what St. Benedict lays out in his rule, the rule of St. Benedict, which he created for monks to order their lives as they lived in monastic communities. Um, hence the title of the book, The Benedict Option. Again, the, the kind of cultural insight here is that culture forms us or deforms us as much as we form it. And to resist culture's deformation, you need to build robust countercultural practices into your life. And the only way to do that is to find a robust community of faith. And I think he's just spot on. He's just right about the importance of community. If we're going to resist secularism, we need a strong community. That said, his thoughts about community are wrapped in a larger narrative that just strikes me as too fear-based. 
Are we really at an irredeemable point in culture where Christianity has no more cultural value? Or are we just at a point in culture where white, conservative, Western Christianity no longer has much cultural value? Theologically orthodox Christianity is not the same thing as white, politically conservative Western Christianity. Again, I'm curious if people disagree with that. Let's talk about it um, afterward. Dreher makes great points about community, but the overall narrative, in my opinion, is questionable. I always agree with like 87% of Rod Dreher, but that 13% is really significant. And uh, just read it. Yeah, read it. See see what you think. I included a quote here, but I had to cut it out because I'm sticking to an hour. So let's keep going. Winning back, winning over, withdrawing. Those are the three options we've looked at. All of strengths, all of some weaknesses. Is that all there is? Should we just go home now? No! Our only options are not fight or flight or giving in to fright. There's a way of thinking about our engagement that maintains Christian orthodoxy while striving to be lovingly present on campus. Not fighting, not fleeing, not cowering back in fear. I can't come up with a better name than what James Davison Hunter calls faithful presence. Although I really want to come up with a fourth W to complete my alliteration. So please give me some suggestions in the Q&A. So there's a way of being faithful to God and present to the campus. Distinctive from others, yet working for the welfare of all. And to get there... We have to go back in time, back to the letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon and all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's this ancient vision, though, that I believe will propel us forward and break us out of the culture war mindset that many of us have. So let's turn to the book of Jeremiah and talk about calling. When we reach this 29th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, we find God's people are living in exile in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar has defeated the kingdom of Judah and carried off its inhabitants to Babylon. It's a time of great distress and confusion since the people of God have seen their temple destroyed, their homes taken away, and their lives uprooted. They're living in a foreign land and have to, have to figure out who they are and what they should do in this new place. And it's into this context that the prophet Jeremiah sends a letter, which is the word of God, to the Israelites living in Babylon. And here's the beginning section of that letter, which I'm going to focus on. Does anyone want to read that so I can take a water break? <laughs> Volunteer, just read this out loudly. Thanks, Nishante. That is, okay, so I'll try to This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in there so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Amen. 
So what I want you to notice, notice all the verbs, especially in verses 5 and 6. Build, settle down, plant and eat, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives, give your daughters in marriage, increase. First of all, most of these are like incredibly active verbs. God is not calling them to sit idly by. He's giving them work to do. He's giving them a vocation, a calling. Settle down, build, and plant. There's work to be done. You're in exile, yes, but get going. And don't just stay there for a little while. Stay there for generations. At least, what, three generations? Two, three generations? Marry. Find marriage partners for your children. Encourage your children to have children. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. They're called to build and plant, marry, and be fruitful and multiply. Is this reminding you of anything? What God is calling the exiles to do is what he called Adam and Eve to do in the garden. Namely, to create and cultivate faithfully and fruitfully. Take build in this Jeremiah passage. doesn't seem too much of a stretch to me to think that this is an allusion to the calling to create in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we read about mankind being made in the image of God. What does, it be, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Augustine thought it had to do with our rationality. Other scholars more recently have talked about how it means we are God's viceroys ruling in his stead. All these surely are true. Andy Crouch, though, in, again in culture making, doesn't want us to lose sight of the bigger picture of Genesis 1. This is what Andy Crouch writes. What we have seen of his God's character over and over six breathtaking days worth. Of course, what we have seen most clearly is that in the beginning, God created. Splashed all over the page is God's purposeful and energetic desire to create. So when the human beings, male and female, are created in God's image, Surely the primary implication is that they will reflect the creative character of their maker. To be made in the image of God, then, is to be a creator. To create. To build. Genesis 2. Um, Yeah, when God commands the Israelites to plant gardens in, in Jeremiah's letter, the allusion to Genesis 2 is even clearer. In Genesis 2, God planted a garden, Genesis 2, 8, and put man in the garden to work it and take care of it, Genesis 2, 15. God is a cultivator, someone who cultivates the plants in the garden. And human beings, in his image, are also cultivators. In Genesis, God calls Adam and Eve to be cultivators and creators, or as Annie Crouch puts it, both gardeners and poets. And they, and they are gardeners and poets of culture. God brings the animals to Adam. He names them. That is an act of culture making. Using language to classify. Create new categories even. He composes poetry about this woman taken from his side. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. Culture making of the highest order maybe. Music. Song. Poetry. This is what some people will call the cultural mandate in Genesis. God's command to create and cultivate culture. And just a little bit of a thought experience. If Adam and Eve had not fallen, 
they wouldn't have just sat around eating fruit of the legal variety, bored with nothing to do. That that was kind of my image. Just like heaven's kind of the harps, like people sitting harps, playing harps. It's like Adam and Eve just kind of like sitting in the garden, like eating and hanging out. It's like, no. They they had a mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, to create culture. They would have made vast and beautiful culture as they began doing before the fall. As it was, the cultural mandate got twisted after the fall, and we ended up with Babel instead of a beautiful Edenic city. We don't have time to go into this right now, but I really want to just dangle this. Dangle this for you. Cities are not inherently bad. They're not parts of the fall. Things go wrong when we don't trust God in our building. That was the fault of Babel. But God's call to Adam and Eve was to create and cultivate. And that might have looked like building cities that glorified God. Indeed, the new Jerusalem, which is the pinnacle of the new heaven and new earth, to which we're headed, is a city. Back to Genesis. Adam and Eve were called to cultivate and create a particular kind of culture. Namely, a culture of shalom. What is shalom? James Davison Hunter describes it this way. Shalom is a vision of order and harmony, fruitfulness and abundance, wholeness, beauty, joy, and well-being. It is life as it should be lived. It is the life that is full of what is true, good, and beautiful. For a lot of us, Labrie is a place where you find shalom. And I'm not going to romanticize Labrie here, okay? Because there's a lot that's difficult about being a student at Labrie. You do not have a lot of private space. You share one bathroom. And you do a lot of dishes. And more dishes after that. There's a lot that's not fun. And more seriously, when you're here, God brings up very difficult things often in your life that you have to sort through. Labrie can be hard. But being at Labrie can also give you a vision for a culture of shalom. When I came here, I was basically a brain on a stick, to use James K. Smith's phrase. I cared about ideas, and that was it. Is Christianity true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Important questions that, by God's grace, I sorted through. But I didn't do so as a detached brain. I met Joe Morell, a former worker who made not only tasty food, but food that looked like that. (laughs) Beautiful dishes. Food here at Labrie is not just fuel. Food is a part of a culture of beauty and abundance. And before lectures that would start in the summer, shoot, I meant to look at this on the way in and I forgot. But Sarah Chestnut would cut flowers from the garden and put them by the front door. That's such a little thing, but it says something. It says that we're people who need and appreciate beauty, not just brains on a stick who want to talk about ideas. Are there flowers there? It's winter, so I don't know. There are flowers there. I'm still a brain on a stick. I was like, I'm going to notice the beauty today. But failed. I could talk about the amazing conversations you have here at Labrie, whether over a meal or even doing dishes or splitting logs out back for the wood stoves, the joy of playing volleyball or board games, celebrating together over the 4th of July, or watching the Super Bowl 
Not sure if you're still allowed to do that, so don't get your hopes up. If you pay attention, there is a culture of shalom here. If you let this place form you, you'll remember what it means to be human. By which I mean our original vocation to create and cultivate a culture of shalom. We're not in Eden. Labrie is not perfect. Just like nothing is perfect. But God is at work here, shaping people of shalom. Have you experienced this life of shalom? Even if it's just in glimpses? It doesn't have to be here. It doesn't have to be here at Labrie. It could be anywhere. We're going to talk about bringing shalom into the world. And I think we can only do that if we experience it somehow. And if you haven't, that's not to like condemn you or make you feel guilty or anything, but just to encourage you to seek out places of shalom and to seek out people who are marked by shalom. So Adam and Eve began to create this life of shalom, but they failed. What's significant for us though is that God is calling the exiles in Babylon to pick this vocation back up. God says to the exiles, build, plant, eat of the abundance, increase in number, do all the things I called Adam and Eve to do right where you are in exile. It's a shocking claim if you think about it. They're in exile in the midst of this unjust empire. At the end of their world, as it were, God is giving them the instructions he gave to humans at the beginning of the world. But again, maybe that's no coincidence for the God of creation and new creation. What is perhaps even more surprising is that God commands them not just to build up this culture of shalom for themselves, but for the city. God says through Jeremiah, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Do I have the... Uh, no, I don't. Sorry. Let's go here back here. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Literally, seek the shalom of the city. And that's a surprising word, because you have to remember the Babylonians are not just any foreigners with whom the exiles are dwelling. They are their enemies in their culture war. We would expect God to say, their God, the God of Israel, to say, don't go anywhere near the Babylonians. But that's not the message. Seek their shalom. Do you see how God is calling the exiles here to live in a creative tension? They're not to assimilate or accommodate. They are to be distinctive. That is so clear from the Torah, from all the books before Jeremiah. And even, in a sense, it's clear from this command to seek shalom. It's an implicit command at the beginning of the, the passage here to seek shalom, because the Babylonians are not seeking shalom, at least not in the way that God intended it. So even seeking this life of shalom is going to make them distinctive. But in a surprising twist, being distinctive doesn't mean withdrawing or being standoffish with the Babylonians. Their countercultural pursuit of shalom is meant to bless the city. They are to somehow live in this tension of being in Benada of Babylon, faithful to God, present in the city. This, I believe, is our vocation too. When we find ourselves studying at secular universities, working in secular settings, living in secular families, 
to be faithful to God, to be present in the university, working for its shalom. So if this is indeed our calling, what would it look like for us to build up a culture of shalom? Not only for ourselves, but for the university or the secular environment to which we're called. This is Charlotte Douglas International Airport, in case you were wondering. If any place is opposed to shalom, it's airports. Now that I have two kids and a dog, going to airports is literally the worst. Yes, we are that family that brings everyone, dog included, on board. Don't judge us, please. But kids or no kids, dog or no dog, all of us probably feel some combination of tired, anxious, annoyed, or on edge at airports. In culture making, Andy Crouch describes what some designers have done here with a space at Charlotte's airport to change the culture a little bit. So near the food court, this is not from his book. I just like Google it to see if I could find it. I think the food court's like way down at the end. They're like that red sign that's not Chick-fil-A, but we were just at Chick-fil-A, so I'm thinking of Chick-fil-A, but something like that, Popeye's maybe or something. Um, Near the food court, the designers put up some wooden rocking chairs under the trees. So you see the trees, I mean, maybe in the front you can see, they're just these rocking chairs, these white rocking chairs underneath the trees. I'm assuming fake trees, unless by feet of engineering somehow, those, anyway, those are fake trees. Along, and, and along these chairs, apparently there's a wine bar. Yeah, I don't think that's a wine bar, but trust any crowds, there's a wine bar. And, it serves local wine from North Carolina. And Andy Crouch walked by this setup and he noticed mothers rocking their babies, students reading books, and seniors simply people watching. Here's how he describes the implications of this design. In about 100 square feet, they, the designers, created a surprisingly refreshing and welcoming oasis where the usual tense anonymity of airline travel is often broken by smiles and relaxed conversation. These cultural stewards, again the designers, recognize the way that air travel can disempower and thus dehumanize even cultural elites and provided a way back to more generous and gracious horizons, in the case of the wooden rocking chairs, at no extra charge. Is the Charlotte Airport a perfect cultural environment? By no means. And yet it is a place where good news whispers just a bit more audibly. The Charlotte Airport is still an airport. It's not going to become a Florida beach resort or whatever. But the designers creatively engineered this little oasis that brought a glint of shalom, of rest and rejuvenation into this chaotic, anxiety-ridden cultural space. And this is one of Annie Crouch's big points, which is helpful for us to to ponder as well. The way to change culture is to create better culture. If we hope to create a better dynamic on campus between Christians and non-Christians, or even for that matter between progressives and conservatives, or any other tribe locked in battle with one another, we need, with wisdom and imagination, to create better culture. Here's an example from Harvard. If you go to Harvard's Graduate School of Design, the GSD, the students will tell you there that it's a culture of non-stop work. Probably every school in America will tell you that, that there's an unhealthy work culture. 
So as a response to this, the students in the Graduate School Design Christian Fellowship, which is one of the fellowships on campus that I work with, they host what they call GSD, Graduate School Design, T for the entire school. It takes place around the time of exams when students are most on edge and most anxious. It's not a super elaborate event. They set up a table in a way that I think any Libri worker would be proud of with <laughs> candles, flowers, treats, teas, things like that. And all are welcome and actively invited to come drink tea, eat some food, hang out. Like the designers of the Charlotte Airport, they created this space of rest and beauty where there's good food, good conversation. Is this little event going to change the culture of the graduate school design at Harvard? No, it probably won't. But it is a witness to another way of living in our world, even the fast-paced world of graduate school. And while it's just a seed of shalom, we can't dismiss what God, the ultimate gardener, can do with just a seed. Our calling, I'm arguing, is to learn how to be faithfully present on campus by creating and cultivating a culture of shalom for ourselves and for others. It is the work of bringing beauty, joy, rest, and peace into places that are anything but those things. More than critiquing or condemning secular culture, it's the work of making better culture out of our own experience of shalom. I'll bet, though, that at least one of you in this room is thinking, besides when will this lecture end, yeah, 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 all this beauty stuff is fine, but what happens when the gloves come off and the administration at a secular university cracks down on Christians? It's not going to do much good sitting around sipping tea when that happens. we got to wrestle with this with this objection or question. Because no matter how winsomely we witness, no matter how much beauty we create, we still might find ourselves boxed into a corner and labeled a bigoted evangelical. I started out this lecture by mentioning a number of schools at which InterVarsity was de-recognized as a student group after the Supreme Court case Christian Legal Society versus Martinez. Vanderbilt was one of those. I hear that you Libris students have been reading Tish Harrison Warren, Anglican priest, who's written a couple of best-selling books on liturgy and ordinary life. But before she was a best-selling author, she was just a regular old campus minister like me. And she was at Vanderbilt in the thick of things when they were kicked off campus in 2011. She wrote about her experience in Christianity Today. Here's the, this is like the cover page of it. This is what she said. Telling quote. I come back to this quote a lot. I th- this is Tish Harrison Warren speaking. I thought I was an acceptable kind of evangelical. I'm not a fundamentalist. My friends and I enjoy art, alcohol, and cultural engagement. We avoid spiritual cliches and buzzwords. We value authenticity, study, racial reconciliation, and social and environmental justice. Being a Christian made me somewhat weird in my urban, progressive context. But despite some clear differences, I held a lot in common with unbelieving friends. We could disagree about truth, spirituality, and morality, 
and remain on the best of terms. The failures of the church often made me more uncomfortable than those in the broader culture. Then, excuse me, two years ago, the student organization I worked for at Vanderbilt University got kicked off campus for being the wrong kind of Christians. No matter how winsome you are, no matter how much you create a culture of shalom that blesses others, or that you think blesses others, you might still be just the wrong kind of Christian. What do we do in such a situation? Even if we don't want to fight a culture war, what happens when the culture war finds us? I don't want to erase the word fight completely from our vocabulary. Andy Crouch has a really useful distinction that applies here. He says there are postures and there are gestures. Okay, that's a metaphor, but think about these literally for a moment. Our posture is our default position. How we normally stand, say, in the course of a day. But in that same day, we make many different gestures. I reach down to tie my shoes, I drink water, I press this remote, whatever. I make a lot of different gestures. Now, apply that metaphor to cultural engagement. In our cultural engagement, we can have an array of gestures. Crouch himself lists condemning, critiquing, copying, and consuming. Man, he got four alliterations. I don't know how he did that. Oh, I'm stuck on three. Any of these gestures can be appropriate in a given situation. Sometimes you need to condemn things that are wrong with the university. Sometimes you critique. As an aside, sometimes you copy good things that the university promotes and consume good things that the university offers. Do you know you're allowed to have fun? You know you're allowed to enjoy some things? You're allowed to have fun with the good things that are happening at university? Consuming good things is not bad. This is the work of cultivation, really, deciding what is good to keep and what should be pruned. So there are a lot of gestures, gestures we can make. The problem arises when a gesture becomes a posture. And we go from critiquing the university, say, to being critics or cynics. We go from consuming good things that the university provides to being consumers. We've taken the gesture too far. We've taken the gesture too far. And now it's become our posture. Another way of saying this is that something we do has become too core a part of who we are. It's become an identity. So when it comes to fighting a culture war, what I'm trying to push back against is the posture of being a culture warrior, the identity of being a fighter. But sometimes the gesture of fighting is what's called for. If we have to fight, we fight. That's different from going around looking for a fight. My organization, InterVarsity, has gone into court against public universities to protect the right of student organizations to exercise their religious freedom on campus. I think that's right. But for the most part, when we do fight, 
I think it probably looks different than what most of us think of when we think of fighting. We should fight or resist by doubling down in our effort to be faithfully present on campus. Again, here are Tish Warren's words about their situation at Vanderbilt. After we lost our registered status, our organization was excluded from new student activity fairs. So our student leaders decided to make t-shirts to let others know about our group. Because we were no longer allowed to use Vanderbilt's name, we struggled to convey that we were a community of Vanderbilt students who met near campus. So the students decided to write a simple phrase on the shirts. We are here. We are here. That's faithful presence amid hostility. There's no retaliation. There's no meeting hostility with hostility. That's not the way. That was not the way for the Israelites in Babylon. And they faced much worse than what Tish Warren and her group faced. Whether we are welcomed, tolerated, or shunned, the call is the same. To show up and say, we are here, seeking shalom for ourselves and even for you. Not in some triumphalist or condescending sense, I've got shalom, what do you got? But as repentant sinners who witness to a God who brings shalom in both Eden and exile, in both Babylon and Boston. So this this calling, which I think is a calling from God to be cultural gardeners and poets working for shalom, is going to be a difficult road. Many of you know already how difficult it is. So in this last part of the lecture, I want to ask the question, how can you live out this calling? What kind of character will you need to be someone who shows up to campus wearing a We Are Here t-shirt, risking being laughed at or dismissed out of hand? So instead of giving you a list of virtues that you'll forget by the time we're done with Q&A, I want to leave you with three images that will hopefully stick in your mind. Here they are. Extremophiles, thumbs, Merrick, stop us. Don't worry, this lecture is not going completely off the rails. Some of you are thinking like, thumbs? Well, I've never heard that in an application point in the lecture or sermon, but just bear with me, okay? It'll make sense. So let's talk about extremophiles. Has anyone ever heard of an extremophile? Okay, yeah, same. Um, I hadn't until I read the book Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers, who's an Australian pastor. In that book, he describes watching a documentary about life forms in the world's deepest and most remote jungles. Because what else do you do as a pastor but watch documentaries about deep, remote jungles? In that documentary, they bring you to a particularly deep cave. Caves, in general, are not great places to live. But this one cave was really not a great place to live. Instead of water running through it, there was a highly corrosive acid. Surely no creature could exist in such a setting. But, says David Attenborough, in his David Attenborough voice, (laughs) some creatures do live there and not only survive, but thrive. I thought of trying to do the accent, but I just didn't. Okay. Uh, They're called extremophiles. 
extreme, meet an extremophile. I have no idea if that's like actually an extremophile, but Google Images says it is, so it's an extremophile. There we go. Yeah, I, yeah. Probably don't want that as your pet, unless you have a lot of acid lying around, I guess. And okay, anyway. Um, so extremophile. It's actually like a broad term. That, gosh, look at that thing. It's a broad term that includes a number of creatures that exist in extreme temperatures at great depths of sea and in like arid deserts. They can endure extreme situations and it's in those extreme situations that they flourish. Mark Sayers writes, as I watched the series, the term extremophiles clicked with me. It captured a kind of disciple that I knew was needed. We need to become extremophile disciples if we want to live out our calling to be gardeners and poets working for a culture of shalom in secular spaces. We need to have the resiliency. If I were doing a list of virtues, that's what I would have said. Resiliency, but extremophile. You're going to remember that. Extremophile. We need to have the resiliency to thrive in caustic environments. If you are hated by others, when you are hated by others, you need to have resiliency to keep showing up without retaliating in kind. How do we develop such resiliency? Sayers goes on to cite research by Margaret Wheatley that there's a type of person or leader who can thrive in toxic work environments. This kind of person can do so, Wheatley argues, because they have found a sense of meaning outside of the toxic environment. You're on your way to becoming a resilient extremophile when you don't get your sense of meaning or validation from the toxic environment in which you're placed. If you're a student and you want more than anything to get the accolades that your university promises you, you might not be willing to look like a fool wearing a We Are Here t-shirt or attending a protest or doing a million other things that could be creative but costly expressions of your faith on campus. The same goes if you're not a student but are working somewhere. If you're pining for the validation of your boss or your colleagues, you're not going to thrive in that toxic environment. You're going to stay silent in the face of toxicity, or you're just going to yeah, go along with it. So to become an extremophile disciple, you need to believe in a big, beautiful story that gives you courage to withstand a lot of pressure. The gospel is that story, and you need to hear it, live it, love it, in community with others. There's probably no such thing as an extremophile disciple, just extremophile disciples, plural. You need others, you need your community to stand and withstand cultural pressure with you. That is what the Benedict Option, that's the great like treasure in the Benedict Option. So be extremophile disciples. Now let's talk about your thumbs. Okay, look at your thumbs. Look at your thumbs. Okay, we human beings have opposable thumbs. That means we can rotate our thumbs to touch our other fingers. Some other primates have opposable thumbs, but not many animals in the world do. Unless you have an extraordinary pet, your cat can't rotate its toes to be touching each other. 
So having opposable thumbs sets us apart, at least from the majority of the animal world. It allows us to hold things in our hands. Roger Martin, a business school professor, coined the term opposable thinking. If our opposable thumbs allow us to hold things in our hands, opposable thinking allows us to hold ideas, especially ideas that might seem contradictory, together in our minds. This is in contrast to oppositional thinking. Everyone knows oppositional thinking. Us versus them, Fox News versus MSNBC, atheists versus Christians, religious freedom versus equality for LGBTQ students. When you think oppositionally, there's a winner, there's a loser. It's a zero-sum game. Greg Jones, who's a Wesleyan thinker, current president of Belmont University, writes about these two ways of thinking in his book, Christian Social Innovation. Opposable thinking and living means being able to hold to opposing things together in your mind and in your life, such as recognizing an enemy as an enemy and yet loving them. Or in our letter from Jeremiah, being faithful to God, distinctive from the hostile Babylonian city around you, but nevertheless seeking its shalom. Or perhaps this, enduring or having thick skin to endure criticism or hatred from people at your university or in your workplace, but instead of retaliating in anger, you maintain a soft heart toward them. Or having the courage to wear that foolish t-shirt we've been talking about, while still treating with compassion those who make fun of you. Thick skin, soft heart. Courage, compassion. Faithful to God, present to city. Confident in God's strength, humble about your own. Being able to hold these creative tensions together as opposable rather than oppositional, both in your thought and in your lives, will help you seek shalom in secular settings. Okay, finally... I assume no one here speaks Old English, so this is Labrie, so you never know. Anyone speak Old English? Mayarkstapa okay, um, is a word that comes from the Epic of Beowulf to describe the monster Grendel and means a border walker or a border stalker. Artist Mako Fujimura uses this image of a border stalker in his book Culture Care to illustrate the role of an artist. Mayarkstapa's border stalkers They're the people who lived on the borders of their tribe's land, operating at the margins, coming and going with news of the wider world. Fujimura points out that Strider in Lord of the Rings is a border stalker. He's a Mayark Stapa, going in and out of various groups, never quite fitting in. But it's exactly in that cross-cultural position as a border stalker that he's such a great guide and protector. For Fujimura, this is the role of the artist, whether that means visual artist, like Fujimura is, or cultural artist. And as gardeners and poets of culture, you and I, we are cultural artists. To be on the margins of society, not fully part of the tribe, aware of what's going on in the wider world, this is a place of freedom and creativity. And that's what we need, creativity. I keep coming back to this point, but I think it's important because it's realistic. What you're called to do is not easy. Operating at the margins is not easy. It's lonely. It's going to set you apart from your classmates. Since as a Christian, you're not going to be fully one of them. You're not going to be fully in their tribe. 
It might even set you apart from people in your church because they think you're being corrupted by the university or the city you're living in or you know whatever it is, whatever your context is. You'll be misunderstood and probably mistreated. But being at the margins is a place of tremendous creativity, which we need. We need people looking at Charlotte Douglas Airport from the margins. We need people reflecting on Harvard's graduate school design from the margins. We need you, in your context, wherever you are, thinking creatively and independently from the margins. So to live out this vocation, this calling to be people of shalom in secular spaces... We need to become disciples who are resilient, who can hold together difficult or even contradictory ideas, and who live creatively at the margins. I don't know if this makes you feel excited or intimidated or some of both, but I want to close by making one more observation about our passage from Jeremiah. Notice... Another repeated phrase. All those I carried into exile. In verse 4. That's God. God is the I. All those I carried into exile. Verse 4. Again, in verse 7. The city to which I have carried you into exile. These are both astonishing statements of God's sovereignty. Normally, when a group was defeated, that meant their God was powerless. Not so here. God is sovereign over everything, even their exile. God is giving them enormous freedom to pursue their vocation. He gave Adam and Eve enormous freedom. He gave the exiles in Babylon enormous freedom. But later in the letter, right after the part that I've kind of ended with here, he said, God says he will bring back the Israelites who are in exile. He will carry them back from exile. We don't know what God's plan is for America, for American universities, but we do know, in the words of Tish Harrison Warren from that same article, that the gospel is, is as unstoppable as it is unacceptable. We are part of a movement that is unstoppable. Even if on our campus, it seems unacceptable. Because our God is unstoppable. So please, go from here. Be gardeners and poets of Shalom. But do so as people who are confident that no matter what your circumstances might be at your university... You're working for a God who cannot be stopped in the plans that he has for this world. So I'm going to stop there and let's have a conversation. Um, so for some of you, this is your first Libri lecture. Some of you have been doing this for a while now. We just kind of have an open time of conversation. It's not necessarily like Q&A. Like, you ask me a question, I answer. It's like a conversation. So if you have comments, if you have thoughts, if you have questions, feel free to ask those, and we'll, we'll kind of see where the conversation goes. And I'm going to try 
when someone asks a question to repeat it just so everyone can hear it and the recording can know it and you who are listening if anyone's ever listened to this lecture later can uh, can hear it as well so i'm going to try to do that so we'll try to make your questions you know reasonably brief or i'll try to um summarize the gist of it if it's a comment as well so comments questions thoughts Jeff, real quick one. What's that quote? Yeah, Repeat the quote you ended with. The gospel, the gospel is as unstoppable as it is unacceptable. Thank you. I forgot. Let me just put this slide up too. This is kind of like a little bibliography. These are the books that most. These are the books I consulted as I um, put together this lecture. Not all of them like quite made it in it in an explicit way. If you're really interested in like. Christian cultural engagement, then you should start with culture making and to change the world. Like those are like explicitly about um, cultural engagement, but the others are, I guess the Benedict Adoption is too. The others are just good books in, in different ways as well. And then those articles, there's an article that just came out in First Things called The uh, Three Worlds, sorry, Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. That is, it's a provocative piece. Um, but I'd, I'd really rec- recommend you guys read it. It just came out like last week, but it, it, it's a good kind of, not a summary because it's definitely a take. It's a, it's an interesting take on Christian cultural engagement. And I just really recommend that short article in Christianity today by Tish Warren, the wrong kind of Christian. Cool. Is that a hand, Joseph? <clears throat> yeah, Dick. Where do you see at Harvard now places of challenge, tension of being considered the wrong kind of Christian, if any place? I mean, there would be different departments would be different, different uh, you know, undergraduate, graduate, and so on. Mm-hmm. I just would like to see, hear from you what, where you see lines being drawn that we need to wake up to and the students there yeah. especially where that's yeah. a question really yeah well okay you guys should uh, think of some too I'll, I'll just give a few results. so the question is where on Harvard's campus are we seeing kind of the, the battle lines being drawn what are the culture war issues that we are kind of engaging with or could be or should be engaging with honestly like since the pandemic started it's been things have been so politicized that a lot of the like culture war is progressive versus conservative on some of the things that I talked about at the beginning, just kind of like listed, you know, pro-vax, anti I mean, you're not going to get a massive anti-vax movement at Harvard, but like, I just feel like there are a lot of those political issues that have like taken the foot off the gas in the, the like, the battle against Christians on theological issues in the last couple of years. But, I mean, all, always I think the question around sexuality is, like, there. It's the elephant in the room. It's, like, any any minute. In 2019, um, HCFA, which is another it's an undergrad 
student organization. Um, there was some controversy. That was in 20, was that in 2019, guys? I think it was 2019, 2018, 2019. Um, and, and so that was probably the most recent flare up around kind of exactly this issue, kind of policies around sexuality and religious freedom. Um, but with leadership on to do with exactly with leadership. I mean, there other, it's a complicated situation. There are other issues too, but yeah, with leadership in a student organization. Would you guys say anything else in terms of like at Harvard? I'm gesturing to the Harvard students here, like where they're you're everywhere. Um, uh, are there other cultural culture war issues maybe that people are processing or talking about or fighting against? to me my first week I'm in the policy school so I was in a conversation with someone and she said like I have no interest in holding a conversation with a Republican at all in my two years here <laughs> and I think that there's kind of this culture of like if you're not with me I don't even want to talk to you like there's no I think we're losing the ability to have like help like just like important discussions because people are so ready to write you off if you don't agree um, and and even in the littlest ways, like we could have like a slight disagreement, but if you, I feel like we're losing this ability to have conversation because people are so willing to villainize another person that they don't they don't want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, and it's kind of how it's become politicized, you know, especially like Democrat versus Republican. That is a hand now. Yeah, I yeah. think kind of seconding that, and that kind of makes it a little more difficult. Um, is that there's a, a very real sense that if you're outside of the bounds of what's accepted, that you are you're a pariah. Like mm-hmm. I guess people talk about cancel culture, and I'm not gonna, I don't want to. You can say that for another day. Um, but that kind of that makes it. I think that makes like the stakes feel high. Yeah, exactly. Feel high to um, especially start getting into those issues where it's obvious that we're operating from different models. Yeah. So there's, I forgot to someone. So one comment kind of about, um, you know, uh, on campus, people don't want to talk to Republicans. If you say you're Republican, people don't want to talk to you. You kind of have to toe the line and be totally with someone or else you're against them. And kind of this all or nothing thinking, cancel culture, those ideas um, are on campus. I, in my five years at Harvard, I've I've noticed kind of like two realities that are existing at the same time. Like it's very difficult to be a Christian. You're always one step away from being canceled, and there's a lot of hesitancy that people feel right, perhaps rightly so, from like kind of speaking their minds. And yet, at the same time, I can tell you story after story, and I did, but I cut them out of beautiful ways that students have shared and faculty have shared their faith in a way that's just like kind of like I don't know if Emily Dickinson meant this by like tell it slant (laughs) but like people who tell it slant a little bit it's just not in the way you're thinking of because if you're a non-Christian at Harvard you're thinking the Christian's going to come stand in Harvard Yard and say like you are damned if you don't do this Yeah, that's what people are expecting but if you tell it slant like at the School of Education, there's this event called Double Take. 
which is a big storytelling event. A few students are selected to share their to share a like seven minute story. Most students will share like their life story, something that's difficult to happen to them. It's in front of the whole school, and multiple students in 2019, like last time we did it before the pandemic, shared that they were believers and God saved them from. I, and Jesus Christ saved them. I mean, they're not talking about like a higher power. Like Jesus saved me when I was in this really dark place. So it's like you can do that. And I know a professor also at the School of Education who gives a talk at orientation to all the students, and he starts out by singing a gospel hymn. He just like sings a gospel hymn, talks about Jesus. He teaches um, classes in faith and education. So it's like two things are true at the same time. It's hard. You could get canceled. There might not be like there's a right setting maybe to talk about your faith, but there are ways of talking about your faith of creating beautiful culture that invite people in that are, yeah, just that are different, that are like acceptable and that work. Yeah, Angela. Yeah, I think in a similar way, I just wanted to add, um, I think some of the things that my classmates have found very compelling about Christian culture are Sabbath and hospitality. So I've been really surprised at how many of my classmates have like asked me follow-up questions like weeks later about identity and like how can you Sabbath being at a school like this or um, being surprised that I just moved in and in people's homes regularly to the church. And so I think that's one of many ways that Christian culture can be an invitation to like abundant life. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that's not really a sculpture war, but like invitation to something deeper. And then I have just a question. Um, yeah. I feel like I've had a lot of experiences being in communities of incredible Christian hope and imagination, which has been such a gift, but I think I'm still trying to figure out what my part in creating shalom is. I was curious in this conversation of culture making how we can individually yeah. and in community figure out like what that kind of looks like on a practical day-to-day basis. Yeah, so a couple great comments by Angela about how Sabbath and hospitality are really good practices that non-Christians are um, interested in and that could be a way to invite people into a beautiful Christian culture. And then a question about, you know, how can we kind of take this to our context and how can we be culture makers, how can we be creators and cultivators of shalom in our context? I think, I mean, that is the question. That is the, like, creative part, the creative calling that God gives us is that there is no one-size-fits-all. I think you alluded kind of to a way forward in the way you phrased it, like kind of in our community. It's like it's in community with people you're doing life with and creating this culture together because no one's really doing it on their own. It's like you kind of figure that out. Um, I'm just not a super creative thinker, so I don't know. I don't know how you're meant to do it, but that's that's the cool and intimidating part of kind of living into this vision is that, oh yeah, there's not necessarily like a prescription. There's like a calling and then, yeah, how do you live that out and what do you do? I think some of it involves doing a kind of cultural analysis of where you are, like what is needed here? And you mentioned hospitality and Sabbath. So you kind of done a cultural analysis, oh, Christian and non-Christians are interested in, in Sabbath and in hospitality that's not to make it like a utilitarian thing, but people's needs are something to be paid attention to. It's like, okay, what would be a creative way of inviting people into a space here that is marked by those things? So, I don't know. Do other people have ideas? It's maybe sort of a related comment. Thinking through the 
their sort of boundary walker idea. Um, and I, I love Fujimura's take on all of this. So I'm really glad that you referenced this book. Uh, but uh, I guess this isn't an answer so much as a question that uh, to walk this line in a university will not only place you on certain boundaries, like kind of at the boundary in the university, kind of not fitting the categories, sort of in, at the margins, but you're probably also going to be at the margins in a lot of Christian spaces as well. Um, I mean, personal experience, I'm an anthropologist and an evangelical Christian. Those things don't fit. <laughs> so at church, it's like nobody understands the value of my work. And at work, people are like, can be a Christian anthropologist? Mm. Uh, and so I guess the thinking of that sort of the, the a way I've heard it put is that you're kind of a missionary on both, but you're a double missionary, yeah. uh, like to the church and to uh, the academy. So I suppose another layer of this question is when you're doing this kind of work, uh, how do you then also have a posture of offering it to your church that may not understand the value of it? And then it, it's a place in which you have Christian fellowship, and, and therefore there's, there's a a kind of bond of, of trust and mutual love that you can have that you can't have at the academy. Right. Uh, but it may be hard to translate those ideas that uh, those good things from the academy that people in the church, uh, particularly in, in evangelical settings, will think is worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a great point, Christian. So Christian was saying um, that we talked about the idea of a border stalker, uh, kind of out in the world, but also you're a border stalker, you're um, a stapa, uh in the church too. You might not be understood by people in the church, so you're kind of this double missionary. And I mean, I think you totally have to find your people somehow, whether that means with other academics, like the one other who's going to be like in a similar place as you, like that is going to play a role. And I also wonder, I don't know, if, if God puts us in those positions. I mean, let's put it this way. The fruit of being in this position, yes, it means you're lonely, but it also means you're going to be humble if you're like learning the right lessons because you don't quite fit in anywhere. You realize there's a gift the church has to offer. You realize there's a gift the university has to offer. So hopefully you're just, you're more humble. I don't know. We just need more humble people. Ben, is it you going to... Uh, yeah, I feel like there's, there's various different whole areas of concern that um, I don't know whether it's, it's similar to what you're referring to as uh, Talks Land, where just, they just don't fit the stereotype that, that secular people tend to have in Christian. Uh, but are nonetheless absolutely Christian concerns. Mm-hmm. And that Christians are called to should be concerned about. I mean, I, I, it could be any number of different things. I think one typical one is, is the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, you know, faithful, responsible teaching is to, is to be stewards of, of creation. They actually really, really care, uh, not yeah. just in words or not just aligning yourself with with with, um, with a political party, yeah. but but um, in costly ways. Yeah. Whatever that looks like. Uh, and that is so because because of the political polar, polarized situation we live in. Day and the association of, of, of Orthodox Christianity with conservative politics, that is just not, it, it shatters a lot of stereotypes, I yep. think, for Christian people to 
um, really throw themselves into these kinds of things. You're going to be rubbing shoulders, and, and you're going to be what Schaefer called co-belligerents with, yeah. with people that you disagree with, maybe about almost everything else. Yeah. But but still, you're you're uh, working alongside them, not not to fit in or not to assimilate or not to be liked, but because it's faithfulness to Christ. Right. Um, and and actually, I think in a lot of those situations, you see. Um, Christians have the potential of really showing the foundation for what they're doing, for the moral action they're taking that secular people just don't have. Yeah, exactly. Um, Where do human rights come from? I don't. They just are here, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and I, I think that that kind of it, it's worth looking for areas in which we can sort of. I don't know whether join forces is too is the wrong term, but sort of like the uh, yoke fellows with <laughs> the people on things that are actually they were called to do as Christians, but that actually don't um, make it more difficult to be written off because they don't fit the stereotype. Right. So, so Ben was talking about, you know, there's some ish, Christians don't fit neatly into political categories, mm-hmm. and so when Christians, quote unquote, conservative Christians start caring about the environment, it's like, well, where do you put them? You can't really put them in a box, and and so that, you know, if we embrace our calling in these various areas, that's not determined by like our politics, then we do help to shatter those or break down those kind of categories, and. Can I give a plug for the AND campaign, which is yeah, like yeah. all about like you know yeah. biblical values and social justice, or this and that that are not supposed to be together. And I think uh, the co-belligerent thing is just like totally the right word. And they, the AND campaign picks that up actually, you know, from Schaefer, the the idea of being a co-belligerent. And that, I mean that's so hard to do now because were you saying, Matty Joseph, like if you don't agree with me on everything, then you don't agree with me. It's just like it's all or nothing. Well, what if we're co-belligerents? We agree on this this one thing. But we don't agree on these other things, but we're working together on this one thing, and like, that's okay. So, I think we just totally need more of that. Yeah, Marty? Yeah, um, just an example of that. Um, uh, Tish Harrison Warren, some of you know she writes um, an, a newsletter up for the mm-hmm. Sunday Times. It comes out every Sunday in your email if you, if you subscribe to the Sunday Times, and she's wonderful. And she had one recently on pro life feminism. Yeah. And that's one of the areas where that I've done a lot of thinking, thinking on, and again, it the idea of being a pro-life feminist just it, it, it shatters the expectations. It shatters the stereotypes. You know, you're not a you're not a redneck male with a bullhorn telling women what to do with their bodies. Mm-hmm. You're you're a sensitive female <laughs> pro-life feminist, and yeah. and yet she she got slammed by Jezebel's newsletter, which is a mm-hmm. which is a very out there feminist mm-hmm. newsletter. But you're hoping, you know, there are, there are lots of other people hearing and reading her from New York Times who are hearing, oh, you can be a pro-life feminist? Yeah. And um, coming very much out of, her, out of her Christian view. And again, as you say, that, you know, my view is that the, that the best of feminism needs the Christian faith. It, it, needs, it needs the biblical view that every human being, male and female, are made in the image of God. And there's... And there's a basic human equality in creation, but which is not anywhere else. I mean, there's no other foundation actually for human equality, whether it's racial equality, gender equality, or any any other sort of human equality. And so, Mm -hmm. when Christians can both embody that and 
talk about it in a way that, again, just breaks stereotypes. Yeah. Um, uh, and you're just putting things together that, that the cultural wars did not put together. Right. Um, it's really, it can be very powerful. Yeah. So Marty's talking about basically bringing together two things that the culture thinks are opposed to each other, specifically with the example of being a pro-life um, feminist. And again, that works to kind of break down these assumptions people have um, and these dichotomies, these all or nothing, this all or nothing thinking about different categories. And uh, yeah, see that hand. Go for it. Uh, yeah, Joseph. Okay. I had kind of like two thoughts. Go for it. Um, I'm going to go for one first. Um, you talked about, I, I really appreciated how you talked about the gestures and the posture mm. and how condemning would be a gesture. And um, I have a colleague, I guess, or a, a fellow classmate, a person I go work, um, who I want, obviously doesn't, who is not Christian, is secular, so I, I understand that. And one of her, the main things that she, like, embodies or supports is something which is antithetical to like a Christian worldview. So I'm curious, how do I approach that? Like, where like, there, there's, in a sense, there's this, something we didn't really touch, touch on here. There's a cultural war going on, but there's also spiritual warfare in a sense that's going on. Like there are powers and principalities, so to speak. Um, there's, there's evil and good that's kind of playing out um, in both sides of the political aisle, let's say. Yeah. Um, and how I'm I'm at a loss to know how do I condemn what they, I guess, the evil that wants to embody itself through this person, mm-hmm. and yet not, and yet be, in a sense, a faithful witness to this person. Right. Um, and so far, I've just been mum about what they, what I see them standing for. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't want that to become the case. No, it's a great question about, <clears throat> um, yeah, basically. If you have a colleague who believes something antithetical, you know, what do you do? Do you condemn that person and thinking through spiritual warfare? Like there are things to be condemned, but you also want to be faithful witness and be winsome maybe. Um, I mean, I think the first thing to say is definitely listen to more lectures than just this one. <laughs> because this is like, you know, outlining this idea of like, yeah, let's work for Shalom. I'm not, not, I did not get a, at all into the reality of spiritual warfare and the, the powers and principalities that you're going to be running up against. That's a huge part of what it means to be in a secular world. And I think the gestures and postures thing gets at that. We have all kinds of different gestures, one of which is fighting. And fighting is not like a bad thing. And I think we have to fight spiritual warfare. Again, I think it goes back to Angela's point kind of about creativity, like, what are you going to do in any given moment is going to be a matter of discernment and like creativity. And I pray that God will lead you in that. I mean, I do think generally like, and I know you know this too, but like leading with, not leading with an attack, leading with humility, leading with analyzing the sin in my own life and not, you know, the, the sin of others necessarily like all that. And, you know, doing it relationally, but as we're in prayer, I think we do that spiritual warfare. I mean, I don't know what role like doing spiritual warfare with someone we don't know so well, like with them looks like, but certainly when we are praying by ourselves, um, we do that. Marty and Ben, Ben, ben do you want to go first? Uh, I was just thinking that I, I, um, the concept of the distinction between uh, gesture and posture is new to me. I've seen it in the book. But uh, it seems to me that our posture 
which is the more um, the state that we're in all the time, or, or something like our identity, can be resisting the devil. I mean, that's a posture mm. that doesn't change. But the gestures that we could use to, to do that may look different on, on whatever context we're in. Like, that's good. That it's, it's resisting the devil in our posture to use the gesture of loving somebody. Mm-hmm. of actually really trying to listen to them and understand who they are and why they believe what they believe. Mm-hmm. So so that the, the posture of resisting and fighting the devil, which is totally the, the spiritual reality you're referring to, uh, doesn't necessarily look like fighting the person yeah. who's, who is, in a sense, of the victim of that deception. Um, right. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't even know if I understand those terms correctly. No, I I think it's it's exactly right. So you can have a posture of resisting the devil, and then in that posture have a lot of different gestures, loving the person or or doing other things. Um, Yeah, Marty? Um, I don't know what the, you know, obviously what the issues are that that you're talking about, but I think, I know for myself, and I think for Christians in general, we need to get much better at asking questions people and just whether it's well how do you know that or are you sure of that what what makes you so sure of that or just um dick has done some wonderful lectures on why did jesus ask so many questions and it it, it is extraordinary jesus who knew everything asked hundreds of questions of people and they're often questions to subvert pride to subvert unbelief but um I guess I just think, you know, we need to be, for myself, I need to be much better at asking questions and not feeling I need to pronounce the truth <laughs> so quickly, often, but to, to ask genuine questions to understand where someone's coming from. But but ask, um, follow the example of Jesus and asking and, and praying for wisdom to ask subversive questions that might get under where someone is really, really coming from. And they can questions can come across as not being judgmental, not being a genuine, a genuine question, and not that, you know, I just, I have to, I have to deliver the truth. I have to tell them where they're wrong. Questions. Yeah. So, so kind of like, you know, in our, our posture, one of those gestures could be asking questions. And Jesus has a lot of good questions, and, and so questions are really important in this dynamic. I think I saw a couple hands here. Yeah, in the back. I, I was Greatly brought out the point about story. When we were reading um, Tish's book this summer with my uh, church group, what really came out is the suffering and her ability to put words to story. I'm a grief counselor in a hospice. And I was in a group today of uh, all ages, parent loss. And, and this one woman came on, I haven't seen her since, you know, for a long time. And I was like, hmm, she's at Yale. She lost her father across the border, couldn't see him while he died of COVID in Canada. You know, and she, it was just so beautiful the what she shared of an experience of, she just broke into tears in a class, at the end of a class, mm-hmm. in a photography class, watching, you know, mm-hmm. a, a father and a child doing Tai Chi in a big park. Mm. And she just started weeping, but she felt she had to apologize to the professor, right? You know, mm. but this idea that we are grief illiterate, Mm. Any culture, really. There's just, and Christians, we have so much to offer in that area. And I think it's Definitely. the story and the questions and just the listening, the posture of listening 
and walking alongside those who are suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for the work you do. And um, yeah, just this idea of uh, you know sharing a story, telling a story in this particular case, kind of around grief, uh, can be well something that's healing for the person. But also, I think that's a good example of culture making. Like you're you're creating a story that's like a sad thing could be also a beautiful thing. Like how Tisha's done in 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 her book and. Um, and that's something that, that can draw people in in a different way. So I think it's a super important part of this vocation, it's like story and, and that. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a, a comment that could possibly stumble into a question. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> and it may get long-winded. You can throw a tomato at me. If, uh, <laughs> I go off track. Go for it. But um, with the faithful presence, I, I kind of it doesn't quite capture the fourth W, but I, I just kind of listed working within culture. Hmm. But it doesn't fully capture the the faithfulness and the presence that we have yeah. in, in communities and culture itself. But that's the first comment. But mm-hmm. kind of going into the withdrawal, the strategic withdrawal uh, with Rob Dreher, um, I'm curious, um, like in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, it, it's, there's... I don't know if you call them strategic withdrawals, but where God has called people out into the wilderness yeah. to come back in, to, to pretty much re-enter uh, and to display His faithfulness and His glory within the surrounding communities and nations. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there a space for like a... for some type of faithful withdrawal that leads towards a faithful re-entry to kind of learn the dependence upon God and grow in dependence upon God and maybe even preserve culture in some capacity. And I'm not sure if this is correct, but I, from my understanding, maybe some even monasteries throughout history have, have preserved ancient texts that we so, can yeah. benefit from today. And we can view that as a, a complete withdrawal right. when they were preserving. So I don't know if that's a question. Yeah, no, it's a great, great question, great clarification. So kind of around, um, you know, can there be a strategic withdrawal for a season to then to then go back a, a season of withdrawal in order to be kind of grounded in God and, and then to come back? And also, you know, monasteries, do they have a, have a role? I'm really glad you brought this up. I think I could have made this clearer in the um, essay, or essay, gosh, lecture, that uh, that Maybe there are multiple paths. It's like people can be called to a monastery and like, that's okay. Like, I don't want to say like, all monasteries are bad. Like, I love monasteries. I I want there to be monasteries. Like, I want people to have monasteries. But this is also a path. So maybe I should do a little better, bit better about saying like, hey, this is a path. Um, and, and certainly like you're saying, what's the book that describes that? Like, how the, Irish saved the West or something? Like, it has some of those stories in it too. And it's like, that's super, Super grateful to them for doing that. And then Benedict and, you know, Roger talks a lot about this too. It's like, awesome. Like, those are great things. And the strategic withdrawal to then go back, 100%. I mean, you see that over and over again with, like, every biblical character and people. Um, yeah, from Moses and, you know, obviously Jesus, Paul going to Arabia. And then go, it's just like, it's like essential to people's call is that formation time in the wilderness to then, if you want to call it, yeah, strategic withdrawal to then... So then go back in. Other 
comments, questions? Yes. I was kind of thinking back to Angela's um, comment. That's, that's, that's a question I have too, is like, how do we actually talk to people, how do we have conversations with an actual world like? I don't know is the correct answer, but it's really frustrating. I know. <laughs> you do have to figure it out for yourself, but I think in, in my own experiences, um, where you can, finding people who know you, they, you know, kind of like a long spiritual gifting, like where do we see you have places that um, you find kind of something that you have a strength in, something that you appreciate or enjoy about your faith. And it's something that can be that, that beauty that you express to other people to draw in with that sweet fragrance. And I think talking to people who can see those things in you and can encourage. So I think having mentors and people who have wisdom about talking to people specifically in your life and, and to know your context, talking with friends, you know, Get bouncing ideas around each other and being able to kind of pursue that in community, I think that's really important because it's it seems kind of impossible to be looking at you know this this world that you're, you're trying to enter into and coming up as one individual is just um, yeah I think it is impossible. So I think being able to have like you're saying that thick a thick mm-hmm. community and so using that as kind of a, a springboard um, and and to some degree we have to take risks and learn from the other side of them. Um, I think something that I'm learning to learn from the other side is, is really the importance of listening and make pe- making people feel heard. Um, and so with the, with the con- condemning as well, like you, it, if people don't feel heard, they will only hear condemnation. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I'm trying to explore myself, like what does it mean to, to offer critique, offer criticism in such a way that shows that you've received um, what they've said and, and make them feel known and sharing something else. I don't know what that looks like, but I am learning that how important listening is to that. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And, you know, this can seem intimidating, especially if you don't think of yourself as like a creative person, you know? Um, but all the examples I brought up are like small things. Like it's, we're not talking about like massive things. Like these are small things. And, the kingdom of God often works as a mustard seed. And it's like, we don't need to think in these like massive, I know a lot of us have been trained or shaped in communities that talk about world changers. That's language university uses. We're shaping world changers. Watch out, change the world. Um, but it's like, okay, hope no one from IV is listening to this, but it's like, I mean, are you really going to change the world? I mean, maybe some of you, I don't know. But it's, you can, you can change something of your world and you can change something of the world where you're, have some influence and, and so, I don't know, there are probably a lot of cultural reasons we think big, think about like the big thing or whatever, but yeah, a lot of the work, I learned that here at Libri, a lot of the work is just the daily, do you, is it still saying on the website like, don't come here seeking mountaintop experiences. It was like that in 2014. I don't know. Has anyone updated the website? But it, but it, it's like true. It's the daily work of cultivation and create. Like it's, it's just like daily work and like that's good. Liturgy of the ordinary. You guys are you reading that one by Tish Warren. It's like, it's just the ordinary stuff. Like that's okay. That's good. So it's intimidating, but, um, but just like start small, start where you are. Maybe a couple more. Yeah, Nishante. Like the law that's in your own eye, and it's like 
um, so, like, you don't see, the, we don't see, like, the world properly sometimes, so, like, you may see somebody who might be doing something moral wrong, whatever, you know, it, it is, like, you know, maybe it's literally wrong, but you don't, we tend to then, like, um, make assumptions about their motives, about their story, about, um, just, like, yeah, like, we, and just, like, minimize them, kind of, or just, mm-hmm. like, associate them with that wrong feeling and that's it. We're really, this, it means, like, there's a lot in your eye. It's just, you just accept that, you know, humbly, you don't see their whole situation, yeah. the, the whole complexity of that person. And so it's about asking questions, like, um, really, um, yeah, like, leaning in, like you were saying, like, asking questions, trying to understand, um, and not saying that you, you you say anything is everything goes, but it's just the way you approach it and like humbly and um, and yeah. also recognizing that like we all like not even see the sin that we are like grappling with either like publicly or secretly, making sure that like you see that as more grievous, grievous than the sin that you are, um, that that person may be struggling with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, just having that humility, and um, and with that, it's a tough dis- like discussion, like, nobody likes to, you know, but, oh, oh, another point that, like, the preacher made, or the teacher, um, was Jesus, like, we're, we're not, like, we're not perfect, obviously, um, but Jesus was, and so he had the right to condemn, right? And that was never his, like, he never leaned into the act. The only people he condemned really was, like, like the super religious people. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody else, mm-hmm. um, he, he, he leaned in with more of, like, a, like a compassion, understanding kind of thing. Correction, but in a way that didn't feel condemning. And so, yeah. just, like, as Christians, we, we want to model what Jesus did. So even the process of like, condemning, I think, I don't know, I 100% agree, I think there is a way to correct mm. and disagree, but condemn and like that, like judgment, I think condemning comes with like, this almost like a judgmental, like I am superior, and yeah, but yeah, so yeah, I guess that's kind of my take and just like, yeah. it's interesting because I literally just watched the video Wow. I mean, a lot, a lot of great points there about um, really about humility and, and um, you know, not trying to take the speck out of someone else's eye when, when we have the log in our own. And what if we were known as people who were humble? Like, what, were we known, what if we were known as people of humility? Like, yeah. Uh, I was interested to hear your thoughts on um, the idea of faith and presence um, and everything that we've been discussing and uh, put that in conversation with social media and sort of the demands. Ooh, you went there. You went there. Oh my goodness. I think I was reading, when I was rereading Faithful Presence, so the question is, basically, how do we be faithfully present in the age of social media? Kind of like that. Exactly. No, I think, was it in this book or? Might have been in another book. But okay, basically, I was reading about Faithful Presence while ignoring my daughter. Like, that was basically the context of what was happening. And I'm like, and, he, and he's basically like, you know, you can't be, he said something along the lines of like, you can't be faithfully present if you're like, 
mentally somewhere else, or if you're like reading something else. And, like, and that just has been so exacerbated in the last few years. So, do you guys give out the Wi-Fi password or, or not yet? Or still not? No. It's great. You don't give out the Wi-Fi password because you're supposed to be here at Labrie. When you're at Labrie, you're at Labrie. You don't need you don't need the internet. Go to the library on your off day if you need to if you need to get the internet. Um, and I just think that's so needed. I have no idea what to do about it. Like, you know, actually, I do have ideas about that, but that's a totally other thing. But you know, limits on your tech and, and stuff like that, um, accountability, but just like the rampant, un, un, uh, un, uh, un, not unfiltered social media. What am I trying to say? Like, where you can do whatever you want. That's not good for any of us. So I, that's a great point to bring up. Like, what does faithful presence look like in the age of social media? Exactly. Right. And we are in that place, whether we like to be or not, because we are yes. part of this culture. And so I guess, like, yeah, how, how do we feel? And I think that's another good point because maybe that's a mm-hmm. city we should be faithfully present to. That's a culture we should be faithfully present to. It's going to look different for all of us. You know, how addicted are we? There's so many questions <laughs> to ask. But uh, certainly for some of us, we need to be in that public square contributing in some way. And that's, again, it's like different for, for each one of us. But I think that's a great point to bring up. Um, you should write the book. I'll read it. There's a question here, and then, um, yeah, maybe then we'll wrap up. Yep. Um, I mean, th- th- there have been many things I've been thinking about, but um, I'm going to j- just refer to my, my patron, St. Augustine, uh, who uh, says that the, the end, that is, the purpose to which all education is to be directed is love of God and love of neighbor, and uh, and I think that, and I don't think that's limited formal education. I think right. that's to the education that 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 we grow into uh, daily, and and, uh, and and I think that that is, as an organizing principle sort of uh, helps take care of a lot of things because it brings a whole lot of things together. Humility, uh, the the, the plank in your own eyes as opposed to someone else's, uh, spiritual warfare, uh, the asking of questions, uh, the idea of the imago dei in in the person. Uh, you're, You're encountering uh, you know, going at it with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think if, if we keep something like that in mind, uh, as opposed to a diploma or a credential as a purpose of education, uh, that 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 I think can uh, sort of help calm waters and, and also just sort of help us think about ourselves and others. Hundred percent. Love of God, love of neighbor, the chief end of education. I think it's a great, to use Andy Crouch's terms, that's a great posture. Like that's kind of an identity, a core set of values, but like a core value of that can really orient us in the world. And then from that can come a lot of different things. Yeah, that's great. All right, Ben, you want the last word? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have the penultimate word. Go ahead. Okay, okay. Well, I was going to say just, just about the social media thing. Like it's, uh, yeah, in, in some sense, it's just the way the world is, and, and, and 
at least some of us, some of the time, need to be engaging with it thoughtfully and truthfully as Christians. But I think it's a mistake to, to buy into the fact that, to buy into the, the assumption that this is the new community in the sense that it replaces embodied engagement with other real people in the same room. Because that means that there's so much, there's so many, so much evidence for how unhealthy it is psychologically and in all, all kinds of different ways. Increasing anxiety and, um, you know, when we are existing in that virtual space to the exclusion of face-to-face relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's not so much the thing itself, maybe, but what it pretends to replace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need to really be, watch out for it. Yeah, so kind of a caution that even if we're engaging in this new public space, social media world, it can't replace <clears throat> an embodied world. <clears throat> and I think that's, again, we think about, back to Angela's point about, you know, Sabbath and hospitality are things that people are longing for. <clears throat> Voice given out, but we're almost over, we're almost there. Um, embodiment is too. And like, at least on our camp, in our campus fellowships, who are the people meeting in person? Like, the chess club's not meeting in person. Well, maybe they are. I don't know. But, like, the Christians are meeting in person. Hopefully we're doing it responsibly, but, like, we're meeting in person. And so we're, if you want embodiment, which a lot of people do now in this disembodied world, where do you go? Like, maybe you're coming to a Christian fellowship. Maybe you're coming to church. Maybe you're coming to Labrie. So I think that's another gift that we can offer. Tish Warren had, it's like her second most yeah. recent yeah. article is on that. She actually, there was some good pushback to what she said, but her overall point is really strong. Like, basically we need... We need to worship in person. That was her thing. I think she didn't consider some caveats, especially around disability. But like the main point is a good one. Um, so embodiment, cool. Let's stop there. Great to be with you all, and feel free to linger or or leave. Thank you. Jeff. Yeah. Do you stop or record again? Just let Ben do it. I don't know if he had stop or record. Stop.